Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome to our second installment of the Void Book Club. This is going to be our first patron-only episode of this uh, segment, so that's exciting. Yeah, I hope people can get it. Yeah, definitely. I hope it works. Uh, I hope people are able to find it. Uh, As always, I am your Void host, Aaron, and here with me, as always, is my Void co-host, GW. How you doing, man? Great. Let's do it. Let's let's dive in. Uh, So we're on to Chapter 2 of Superintelligence. Yeah, chapter two, Paths to Superintelligence. Yes. So we're going to, this chapter is broken down into sections talking about the various paths that we could see emerge on on how to get to superintelligence. So artificial intelligence, I think, being the one that they probably think is the most likely to get there first, but we're going to look at alternative models as well. And yeah, you wanted to start off, though, with the definition they give of superintelligence, I think. Yeah, uh, I think this is really important because it's literally the first sentence uh, he writes. Uh, So I quote, We can tentatively define a superintelligence as any intellect that greatly exceeds the cognitive performance of humans in virtually all domains of interest. And he sort of go uh, he goes on to expand upon that just a little bit. Uh, says that he's going to define it more later, but he also says, for instance, and quote-unquote engineering intelligence would be an intellect that vastly outperforms the best current human minds in the domain of engineering, unless unless otherwise noted, um, blah, 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 blah. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, I just think we need to keep that in the back of our brains as as we continue because we're slowly going to use more specific terms, right? We previously defined general intelligence and general artificial intelligence, and now we're defining superintelligence. Yeah, and it's a pretty, I mean, like, it's a somewhat vague definition, right? It says more more than the current human capacities, which uh, I think could be cashed out in a bunch of different ways, and we'll see, uh, we'll see what sorts of things could actually get us there. Yeah. So, so section, section yeah. one is artificial intelligence. Right. So I I need to go to my notes. I actually wrote notes. I mean, if you want to if you want to hop on first. Uh sure. I mean, I think this is the sort of the central theory of the book is going to probably I'm I'm guessing is going to be focused primarily on artificial intelligence as the first across the finish line when it comes to real superintelligence. I think the next most likely being the uh the cognitive the alteration of human cognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I the, think yeah. Yeah, I think he thinks that the the real the real time problems with that of actually having to age up the the improved human beings compared to the speed at which one can advance in artificial intelligence is why he thinks probably the artificial intelligence is going to dominate ultimately. So, yeah. and I, what it seems like he thinks the most likely route that that goes is you get to a artificial intelligence that's. Uh, on par or you know slightly slightly better at least than human beings when it comes at least to understanding its own uh, program and coding its own program and he, what it, what happens like we talked about in the first episode at that point is the the program then bootstraps itself up to super intelligence by improving its own programming yeah and uh, this is I think an important point to highlight that um, Alan Turing, who's sort of considered the father of, of uh, computation, 
uh, he had this concept of what he called a child machine, that he thought it would be better to not try to create an artificial intelligence that had all of the intelligence ready to do whatever, that it'd be better to design a machine that could then learn how to learn, uh, but not just how to learn. I'm sorry, let me restate that. Yeah. It could learn how to do things, but it also could learn how to learn. Right. He, yeah, he just sort of, in, in his paper that it, um, lays out the Turing test, it's like a, almost a, um, it's a really interesting thought right at the end of it where he's like, you know, instead of creating this this finite structure that can do all of these things, uh, why not instead try to model it after a small child, give it some small, very basic system, and then have it build the rest of itself up through experiences, yeah. um, which, which came to proceed the way we understand a lot of learning machines today. Yeah, and the question I had was, uh, so using the idea of a machine that's capable of learning, you know, should there be a limit to such learning? Like, you know, as humans, we age, right? Learning becomes more difficult. So it becomes finite in a way. Like, right. do, like, do you think that it might be smart to try to limit the range of said learning? To try to artificially limit it on our end? Yeah. Um, I don't know how we would... This is a really interesting thing to me because when you as soon as you start talking about self-programming programs, it's not entirely clear to me how you prevent them from doing anything, right? right. Because part of their program is always going to be the goals or the constraints that say you can't do this, or you can't do that. And I'm, I'm not sure that there's a way to program a computer so that it can't possibly alter that part of its programming, but can program the other, reprogram the other parts. But I'm not well, quite sure how that would work. Well, uh, the book even defined uh, shows a difference between uh, a sort of regular AI and a seed AI. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's Bostrom's term. Where a seed AI has access to its own architecture and has access to modifying its own architecture. That it has the ability to modify, you know, itself. Right. It's almost like if a human was able to like change our own sort of biology. Right. So you're going to have like two kinds of learning machines. You're going to have learning machines that can get smarter and better, but can't rewrite their own programming, I think. And then there are machines that are that can get smarter and better and can to some extent. Yeah. Um, like like current current machine learning, current uh, um, neural networks sort of already do that, right? They don't have the ability to modify their overall architecture. They can modify themselves a little bit, but and they can modify what they learn to be able to apply and make different decisions. But mm -hmm. they can't modify their overarching architecture, their foundational architecture. Right. I was actually just reading a paper from my AI class that talks about how he thinks that in order to have an AI that can actually do everyday, real-world kind of stuff, the kind of things we're going to want it to, it's going to need to have uh, the capacity for formulation of sentences about its own internal sentences, right? So it's going to be a logic AI, so it's going to use sentences to drive its behavior, and it's going to need to have the same kind of reflective levels of consciousness that a human does in terms of being able to assess claims about its own beliefs and judge those beliefs in relation to other beliefs and make statements about its goals and potentially alter its own goals. Yeah, it's interesting. I... Uh... I was also thinking about if when humans have a problem where they have like brain damage or something in their emotional part of uh, emotional region of their brain, um, 
right? This is on a recent OA episode where they talked uh, about how. Inquiry. Oh, was, yeah, I'm sorry. It's SIO episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they talked about how those people have trouble with decision making. I, I wonder if like an AI mm-hmm. could have the same issue or like, or potentially yeah. are we, are we unbeknownst to us already encoding or coding emotion? I, I no, I don't think so. I think, um, so, so I, first of all, you have to, like, you could have a whole debate about what emotion is. Is emotion, uh, some, is the, is it the biological response or is it the, a judgment wrapped in a biological response? So I think an artificial intelligence can have the judgment that goes along with an emotional state, but it, you'd have to do extra work, I think, to program it to have the actual phenomenal emotional state, uh, a logic AI in theory, unless confronted with something like a paradox, is not going to have any motivational gap the way human beings do. As evolved creatures, we need emotions to overcome our inertia and cause us to do things. Beliefs alone are motivationally inert for human beings. For an AI, in theory, if it's a logic AI, as soon as it hits a sentence that says, you should do X, it will do X. There's no gap in motivation. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, it sort of it makes me want us to explore a regular episode where we talk about like what is emotion. Yeah, I wonder if he's gonna. I mean, I think it's possible that he'll get to it in here at some point. Uh, emotions, I think, often come up in this in this conversation because there's a lot of question about whether uh, an AI actually could do all of the things we want it to without having understanding of emotions, right? So it might not need emotions from a motivational side of things, but it might need emotions to properly understand morality, for example. Right. It's like, are we making data or lore? Right. Uh, yeah. Another thing I found really interesting about this chapter where it, it did a lot of, at least in this section, it did a lot of like proving it was possible. And I, I want to do another quote here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that blind evolutionary process, processes can produce human-level general intelligence since they have already done so at least once. I, I thought that I thought this chapter had a couple of ton-in-cheek moments, that being mm-hmm. one of them, right. where it sort of is like, yeah, it's clearly possible. It's done it well, yeah. at least once. Yep. <laughs> it's true. I, I like, though, that he's pretty honest about the rate, like the sort of question marks of the range needed time-wise for us to scale up an artificial intelligence to be on par with us, basically. That, like, even though evolution did it over that period of time, like, you know, we're trying to telescope that into a much shorter period of time, and it's there's a lot of question marks about, even with the comparison between, like, how long it takes a species to evolve versus how long it can take a computer program to evolve. Yeah. It may well, still be a while. Yeah, well, I, I really liked how he compared it to, like, bird flight, how how long the evolutionary process it took for mm-hmm. us, for animals to get to the point where birds were able to fly, compared to machine flight, which took a lot less time, right? Right. And, and you know, Bostrom notes that machine flight doesn't flap while uh, its wings, uh, doesn't have to flap its wings to achieve a heavier-than-air flight. But I'm curious, like... It made me realize that this could also show or could prove, um, prove is a bad word. This could be evidence that it's possible to make a human level machine intelligence that doesn't have consciousness, right? Right. Yeah. And I think if, if you, if, if it turns out to be true that you can have human level consciousness or human level intelligence or 
uh, better without phenomenal consciousness specifically. That's the kind of consciousness I think you mean, where it's like there's something it's like to be the robot. Um, yeah, because that's what I was bringing up last time. Right. I think if we don't need that, then it's going to happen way faster because I think that's something we're going to have the hardest time programming because we really don't understand it very well in human beings. If you can leave that part out and you just need a really effective logic machine that doesn't have to have any internal states of awareness, then then I think the AI path gets much shorter. I still had a question of whether you had to code consciousness in order to achieve uh general intelligence, general artificial intelligence. But I think this argument solved it for me that, hey, like the whole bird analogy, I think worked really well. I had another thing that I think was interesting in this section where they're trying, he's trying to nail down uh, the, how long it would take compared to how long it took evolution is that he points out that evolution adapted not only randomly, but also adapted put a lot of energy into adapting a lot of other things that aren't consciousness too, right? So they were that you're adapting physical features, you're spending energy developing um, sensory apparatus within the organism, all those sorts of things. Like with an art, especially with a virtual artificial intelligence, you're really just focused in on improving the consciousness itself. And so it could in theory go a lot faster than the evolving of consciousness within the organism, which may have happened sort of accidentally along the way. Right. Right. Uh, when it got to the part about seed AI, this is what I wrote, which you'll appreciate. This is how the Borg got started. Every one of the sections I was like, is this the way that the Borg got started? <laughs> oh, brain to brain hookup. That's really Borgy. Well, I, yeah, I thought it was like the, uh, an AI that could change its own architecture. I was like, Oh my God, it's what Borg is. That's all they're doing. Yeah. Well, I just got to the uh, the first episode where the Borg show up, too, so it's fucking perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah, I uh, I think I'm good on that section. Is there anything yeah. else on artificial intelligence you want to talk about? I like, uh, speaking of tongue-in-cheek comments, the one, one of the other quotes that cracked me up was he said, far from being the smartest possible biological species, we are probably better thought of as the stupidest possible biological species capable of starting a technological civilization. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're at the real bottom end here, people. <laughs> bottom of the barrel. Yeah, no, so I thought that was really good. Um, so, uh, and, and we'll see in a second, I think it's really good how he ties, how he points out that this kind of, a, this kind of superintelligence development could be benefited by other kinds happening simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, what was the next one? Um, next section is whole brain emulation. Uh, this is the first note I wrote. We went from creating a program that could teach itself to straight up Black Mirror, the episode where uh, Don Draper was in it, right? And he was like mm -hmm. copying someone's sort of self and putting them in a computer. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> I felt like we went from, from like, oh, artificial intelligence to wait, what? We're we're going to brain emulation? Yeah, full brain emulation. This is a long. This is a big popular one. Uh, yeah, uh, we weirdly enough. I think. Do it's you because watch? Of the, have you have you watched Black Mirror? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Okay, okay. Yeah, you didn't respond to my. I thought it was funny. No, I guess no, I'm I mean, not funny. I agree. Like it's 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 it gets super creepy all of a sudden, right? I need you to like, validate me. I'm, I'm valid. Listen to me, validate me, right? <laughs> Listen to my words. You're very pretty. Um, yeah, like it goes from creating a new being, which is weird and problematic in certain ways, to cloning someone, right? Cloning a consciousness, basically, which 
seems problematic in some ways. Yeah. Um, I, th- this one is other things I thought, like, I think it's forgetting the part where, um, like it had those three sections of like, all right, how would we do this? Right. You gotta, you gotta, uh, analyze copy and then simulate. And mm-hmm. I thought it sort of was missing the part. So in the simulation section, it talked about like, oh, you could have just a simple, I think its words were like simple output channel, like to, mm-hmm. you know, for voice, right? But I think it was forgetting the parts where our brain controls other parts of our body. So like there would be uh, sort of like drivers in a way, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. the way that your computer works is when you open a program, the way that, or I'm sorry, when you're writing code, you write English, typically, like for Java or any of those types of languages. And then you have what's called a compiler, which which converts things to ones and zeros so that your uh, mm-hmm. CPU can translate them, right? Because your CPU just uses binary. Sure. So there are other types of programs that are called drivers, which will do that sort of translation as a middleman in a way. So like PCs use a lot of drivers, right? The way that your computer could talk to this printer or that printer uh, assuming that they're different, um, it might use a driver to right. communicate between them. And so I think he missed the part where, like, it made this huge assumption that all brains are equal. And then later in the book, which I'll get to when we get to that section, he sort of contradicts himself. Yeah, I mean, the whole brain emulation thing is interesting to me because it it feels like the the materialist's answer to this problem, right? So artificial intelligence is like the, the functionalist... Um, computer science solution whereas like this is like if you really if you really are committed to the idea that consciousness is just what emerges out of properly arranged pieces of meat or whatever or some some you know substrate that's equivalent to those properly arranged pieces of meat that like if you can just take the perfectest picture of that meat and then make a copy of that meat you'll have consciousness well, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because page 43 was the first time he uses the word consciousness. So I want to quote him again. Mm-hmm. Um, when finally the last glitch is ironed out, what was previously a complete dysfunctional system, analogous perhaps to an unconscious brain undergoing a grand mal seizure, might snap into coherent wakeful state. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, all of a sudden we're talking about consciousness? Yeah, and what a horrifying description, too. So you right? was the brain in a state of pain before it snapped into healthy consciousness? Like, do you know it wasn't? Do you know that you didn't just put it through a bunch of agony for no reason? Right. Like, yeah, it's, um, I have, I have a lot of problems with this one, and I think it's a little weird that he, he focuses a lot on the technological improvements that will be needed in order to make good copies. Uh, and that it seems like there's a whole other world of other questions. Like he sort of, like, I don't know if that ignores, but like glosses over the assumption that if you get the copying right enough, then there will have to be a consciousness there. And I know that there are people within philosophy right. who would think that that's a very functional assumption, you know, and everything like that. But it just... Like but there's just, also like a neuroscience part of it where we know that like our neurons change and we create new or different pathways. Mm-hmm. And those pathways are different biologically speaking, uh, not in all cases, but in most cases. And so like it sort of skips over the 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 uh, biology of it all. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of just unconvinced that we would ever be able to figure out which parts to scan exactly the right way 
and, and be picking up on all of the features that are needed to be scanned properly and then copied properly in order to get all of the things. Yeah, and he talks about the problems. It almost felt like he put this section in there just to because he knew someone would say, well, what about this? And yeah. he's not even convinced by it. <laughs> no, I think it's certainly on the low end of things that he thinks is going to work uh, that we would get get there through much more functional means first. I think this is down there with um, brain to brain, brain to computer plugging in for him. Oh, yeah. Well, before we get there, we get to my next favorite section, which is biological cognition, which yeah. I was like, selective breeding? Like, what the fuck? Like, at this point, I was oh, come like... come on. When, when have you... You know, who hasn't thought about eugenics sometimes? I know I have. I mean, it's just like, at this point... This section seems so completely like he veered so far away from his original tentative definition of superintelligence. And I was like, what? I mean, I get it because he's also going to have the section on cyborgs and he's thinking about like ways that you could bootstrap, you know, human brain consciousness into a super intelligent level without needing artificial intelligence. I think this but is not like, an unreasonable place to go. Like, well, he's I right mean, that I, we've gotten better at gene selection. Yeah, but the way he wrote it, it's like all about technology for changing human cognition and uh -huh. not about like, like he even brought up cloning. I put cloning. Really? Yeah. Why not? But like, what the fuck does this have to do with super intelligence in any way based on his definition? I think the idea is that the more we can understand what parts of the, the, the biology and the genetics go into this, the more we can manipulate those and, and that we could pretty effectively, you know, substantially improve overall IQs, for example. Yeah, I can understand this being a parenthetical as a, we understand, we understand and know that intelligence is something that is uh, elastic and grows because of the way that IQs have increased over time. But we don't have any uh, idea why they're doing that, though. But yes. And that's fair, right. But all of that could, like... Yeah. If the path to a superintelligence, which is defined by him by exceeding human cognition, then it would be impossible. So why is this a viable... Like, it's supposed to be a list of viable methods. I, I think he thinks that this could eventually get us to superintelligence. And I don't think it's wrong to necessarily assume it couldn't. I think... He includes it because he wants to point out that this kind of improving of human intelligence might become increasingly likely towards the middle of the century, and that if this kind of improvement was successful, it would create individuals who could probably bring artificial intelligence to the last step. But I think the, the issue, though, is uh, his definition doesn't say but implies that superintelligence is is not a relative thing. And this then moves that bar to make superintelligence a relative, uh, oh, a non-relative thing. I don't necessarily have that impression. I think the reason he leaves it open-ended with his definition is because he thinks that superintelligence could be anything from a human being with 200 IQ up to God knows what. Right, right but what, I, what I'm saying is like, the our cognitive abilities, like a... 5,000 years ago mm -hmm. are clearly better now than they were 5,000 years ago. So is it is are we already a super intelligence of the 5,000 year ago version of humankind? Oh, I mean, that's what yes. I mean by like, yeah, like, but like, I think he 
he thinks that they're that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I get what you're saying that like, he's taking a particular point in time and saying, this is human intelligence and anything that gets better yeah. than this is super intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. Sure. I, I agree. I think it's fine though. I don't think it's a huge problem because I think it's fine to say if, if, if what he wants to say is how is intelligence going to change from this point going forward? And, and if it gets much better from this point going forward, we're going to call that super intelligence and that's fine. That's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, but I think like if this is a book that's supposed to be sort of, a, uh, it's a book right about super intelligence. You'd think that he, if he's yeah, gonna, if he's, he's gonna, gonna bring, he's gonna give more fine grained definitions. Though I think it sounds like he's gonna talk about like low level or weak super intelligence versus. Well, because as as I know, you know this way better than I do. But one of the things that. And this is obviously not a philosophical textbook. But one of the things that in philosophy that you do when you're making an argument is you also say, like, here's my argument for X. And and arguments that have been for X have tried to say Y and Z. And I think Y and Z are wrong for these reasons. And my version of X is superior or whatever, right? Yeah. And I think that uh, this could have been an opportunity where... He clearly also doesn't think this is a viable thing because he spends most of the time saying how it's not a viable option. The the, I, the, the bio one? Yeah. I think he I thinks it's the next most viable after artificial intelligence. He just thinks it's slow. It's not, it's not that it's not viable. It's just that it's very slow. Right, but I don't think he... Uh, I personally don't think he makes a strong... He doesn't set it up to the best that the argument could be made. Sure. I mean, I think... Or he doesn't. I should say he doesn't hold the argument uh, in in his high esteem as it possibly can, so that his argument could win out. Uh, I mean, I can see some of that. Like, I think he could go a little bit more into uh, what it might actually take to bootstrap it on a genetic level. I also sure. think that he radically under um, underestimates the pushback. I think he, he really, really underestimates how much people will freak out um, at the idea sure. of these sorts of things and slow down the process. So I sure. think it's, it's, it's even longer than he thinks it would take yeah. because of the natural maturation rate of a human individual. I almost like, I think part of my, he- like, uh, part of my friction here is that first chapter, I got a really good sense of what this book was going to be. And this chapter, the perspective of this book completely went on its head for me. I really thought it was going to go down the route of talking mostly about like software technology and all of a sudden, and we can segue into brain computer interfaces. It just felt like uh, now, like now he's talking about quote medical complications, unquote. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? (laughs) Yeah, I think, well, now he's he's switching to, when he gets to brain-computer interfaces, his point is basically that there's no, there's no great upshot to this particular kind of technology. And there would be a lot of downsides that would make it sort of unlikely that people would develop this kind of technology if there were some sorts of big upshots to get to way down the line or something. Well, it's it, like... I had a big problem with this because I don't think he posed a good argument in this one at all. Like he, Mm -hmm. at this point, he he like completely abandoned his original definition of superintelligence. Mm -hmm. And he started talking about 
mostly with people with deafness and blindness and Parkinson's disease and chronic pain. Uh, but he never talked about the possibilities for how it could be. Imp- like, I, I, I understand yeah. talking about uh, the possible downsides, and I think that's totally appropriate, but it seemed like the entire section was nothing but about the bad sides, or or only that this could only be used to help people with cognitive decline in some type, which I sort of took offense to considering people with deafness to be in that category. Uh. Yes, though I think he would he would certainly appreciate the debate that happens within the deaf community about implants. Um, I think, uh, I think, I do agree though that he's uh, un un sort of he's he's not biased, but he's certainly not he doesn't feel super super objective about the way that he approaches this particular avenue. Uh, I thought that he limits the discussion of what the what the advantage of cyborg cyborgifying us would be in terms of <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> like in terms of like, he thinks it's going to mean that you could dump a bunch of information into the brain really quickly, but that's not very useful if the processing capacities aren't there or something like that. I don't right. know if that's really the only way that, that it could actually improve the system. I think there are lots of other interesting ways that you could uh, augment human consciousness to improve it besides just giving it, perfect memory or giving it um instantaneous memorization or something like that well i don't oh i see you're saying yeah yeah yeah. do you know what i mean he pointed out my exact concern with a whole brain emulation about being different right he talks about formats right and he says that uh quote idiosyncratic representations of higher level content right Mm -hmm. he he talked he identifies the problem of like the way that i my brain on a on a neurological level makes sound come out of my mouth in the form of language mm-hmm. and the way that you do it even though we're using the same language uh it could be a completely different neurological process and that then trying to figure that out would be a problem which is the exact problem i mentioned in whole brain emulation that right. he completely neglected yeah to that's mention. super weird because it's like if you don't if you think you could, if, if you don't believe in what the, what's called the identity theory in one case, which is like the physical substrate is identical to the whatever the mental state or the behavior or whatever that's corresponding to it, like why would the whole brain emulation even be a viable avenue then? Like, yeah, that doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. I agree. Um, what else was sort of oh right so like things that you could use right so if we discovered exactly what part of the brain had to do with concentration, right? You could implant something in there that releases just the right amount of chemical at just the right moment so that someone can keep, you know, infinite levels of concentration. That would be a way to vastly improve human cognition that had nothing to do with souping up the amount of information that's coming into the system. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seemed like he was always suggesting that it would be impossible for the brain to be able to sort of adapt this new system. But like the other possibility I thought of was what if we were able to make some uh, brain computer interface that just expanded on one of our parts of our brain. Mm-hmm. Right? It was almost like, uh, you know, adding a, a mm-hmm. USB stick to increase our memory in one section or increase the RAM in one of our sections. Like, right. I could see that as an option, right? Yeah, I think 
I don't know if he's just very pessimistic on it because in the current state of development compared to like logic AIs, the ability to put anything in someone's brain and have it go relatively well has not moved very far. Like maybe he just thinks that it's just, it's going to, if it's going to work, it's going to work after we've already got super intelligent AIs that figure out how to make it work. And then he started talking about like brain to brain, uh, like connections. And in Mm -hmm. a way he contradicted himself again by stating the difficulties of, you know, brain to brain connections being difficult uh, but then he points out that this is the job of language. So right. if we've already come up with a system to be able to do that in a oral medium, then there's clearly got to be a possible way for us to do that in a different medium. Sure. And I think he underestimates the value of doing it in a different medium. Yeah. Because this is where we get the Borg, right? This is the Borg one for sure, right? We're putting brains and we're chaining them together to create a supercomputer. That's that's exactly what the Borg is. Right. So I I really liked on page 58 when he said, while a technical tour de force. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if it's tour de force, I, I just started laughing because I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yeah. We like a good tour de force. Yeah. Tour de force. Uh so that brings us to networks and organization, which is a really short one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was pretty coherent and and nice and succinct. Uh, and I think, so he basically talks about, just for people listening, that by connecting people, uh, the minds of people, not our brains, but our, the minds of people, that that could increase uh, uh, our collective intelligence which I thought was a really interesting perspective because I was I thought like, hey, this is actually already happening with the internet, mm-hmm. uh, with things like open source projects, where as opposed to only being able to code on something on some project with people that are in your immediate area, there are projects that are being coded on by people all around the world, um, and would not be possible if it weren't for having everyone all around the world working on them. Yeah, and this is a very kind of functionalist intentional stance systems theory kind of perspective because this is not the kind of super intelligence i think that is thinking where you think of like a unified consciousness being the super intelligence he's thinking like a singular right right yeah. he's saying all of humanity if chained together but not chained together like the borg but just like hang- we're hanging out working together on slack on the internet would be a kind of super intelligence which is right. if you're into um, systems theory, guys, don't think that there's any difference between an individual uh, doing information processing and a system doing information processing. So like the cockpit of an airplane, they can view it as like a system in and of itself, separate from just looking at the minds of the pilots. And so I think that's where he's getting this kind of definition of a super intelligence is just any system that processes a massive amount of information effectively. Yeah, I sort of feel like there's, we're missing a definition of terms, and that is like, he sort of defines like cognitive process, but then it seems to be a fairly loose term. Like, yeah, it's almost like it needs to be defined as like the ability to do some sort of work. Information lack of processing a better term. is, I think, usually what is probably where he would go with it. Yeah, because so then the stuff. internet is sort of doing that, right? Sure, uh, and that, I think I think that's what he means by yeah, yeah, and that's why like that's why he talks about the difference between one version of this and the more fanciful version where the 
where the internet itself wakes up and becomes super intelligent. You know what I mean? Where it becomes mm-hmm. its own consciousness. So he's yeah. definitely thinking in the first hand about a super intelligent consciousness in the sense of a species in communication with itself, all pulling together can accomplish massive intellectual endeavors. Uh, the same way one single AI with enough super intelligence could. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's very down on the idea of the, the, um, the internet waking up though, which I think is realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I hadn't thought about that perspective and I thought it was actually pretty good. Um, overall, this chapter was sort of all over the place. I had a lot of, I had a lot of feelings <laughs> going through it where when, when I got to, uh, the biological cognition, I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? I mean, I don't think it was a perfect chapter. I do generally agree with the overall claims that are being made. I think AI will come first. I think human improvements um, and the improvements in, in biological capacities will continue and that will aid in completing the artificial intelligence. I don't think whole brain emulation or the other ones are going to pan out very much. I think I think he's underestimating, though, the benefits of things like um, more direct interfacing. Like, yeah, you know, think, like why would you want to? Why would you want to build a jack into your computer? Well, because my keyboard is a pain in the ass, and instantaneous communication with a machine would be much more effective. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, PlayStation made a prediction of PS Nine being that right, or other like other human beings. Right? Why would I want to be able to have brain to brain contact that is more than just language? Well, because Right now, I'm stuck with a, a gap between me and every other consciousness that I can't bridge except through this imperfect system of language. If I yeah. could see directly into their minds and they could see directly into mine, that'd be a vast improvement. Yeah, English has more words by like a ridiculous amount. I, I think it's something like English has over 600,000 words and yeah. the next largest is like 200,000 or something. I'm sure I'm wrong about those numbers, but it's some ridiculously large gap between the two and, and in like English. A, sounds like a racist uh, statistic to me, everybody. No, 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 it's, I'm, no, I'm just English. You. I'm, oh, son you're of a supposed bitch. to validate my jokes now. <laughs> well, I mean, you're pretty. I am. Uh, right, even with English, which is the largest language, like we still di- have difficulty communicating uh, intent, mm-hmm. right? Right. And if people could know what I was, what my intentions were, uh, that could easily be better and and he even talks about things like mm-hmm. being able to have better lie detectors i mean if we could see someone else's direct first person phenomenal experience that would upend so much of what we know so i think that would be very interesting yeah. um that's uh you know, but I think what will happen is that we'll create the super intelligent AI and then it will help us with that interfacing problem. Uh, did you see the Animatrix? Yeah. In the, the sequence in the Animatrix after they've conquered us, the part where they're doing all the tests on human beings to figure out how our bodies work so that they can mm. control us and put us into the Matrix. It'll mm-hmm. be like that, but hopefully more benevolent. <laughs> or it'll just be the Borg and they'll assimilate us. Or it'll be the Borg. It's, I'm really, really okay with the Borg. <laughs> I mean, their cubes just look so perfect. I'm on Borg for this. I, I accept your pun. That okay. was a good one. I appreciate that. Um, but we're getting, I guess, close to the end here. Uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to 
give a little shout out to somebody who sent us a correction from our last book review. So we got this comment about our comments about fuzzy logic in the last one that was pointing out that uh, mostly me, I was a little glib in my account of fuzzy logic. GW gave a uh, very accurate uh, account of how fuzzy logic replaces binary systems with non-binary systems. And I made a joke about how it was mucking up uh, their logic, which partly was because I don't know that much about fuzzy logic and you know, I like to make a joke when I don't actually know something. And partly it was because, uh, you know, if you do believe that true logic is binary, then any non-binary system is, in a sense, weakening logic in some sort of way. Uh, but that being said, um, I really appreciated the comment. Did you find it, finally? Yeah, yeah. Want me to read it? Yeah. Uh, I could have a lot of comments on the last episode, but I particular particularly want to point out that you terribly mischaracterize fuzzy logic and its use in computer programming as being, quote, less logical or making logic worse. Fuzzy logic is an improvement over crisp logic in accurate representation. It can uh, demonstrably accomplish tasks more accurately than non-fuzzy algorithms. You're correct that it's more flexible and perhaps you meant the making logic worse comment was more tongue-in-cheek uh, but I think it's an important distinction. Yeah. And it was tongue-in-cheek, but it, you're right. It was tongue-in-cheek to cover my, my ignorance. And so you've, <laughs> you've caught me, and for that, yeah. you deserve credit. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I went and did a little bit cleaning up my own fuzzy logic to make sure that I understood sure. it properly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are pros and cons to fuzzy, fuzzy logic. It's part of the reason why it hasn't been adopted by... Uh, uh, all systems is because it is inherently has this unpreciseness, which mm -hmm. is in some cases very desirable and in other cases not desirable. Right. right. You don't want to be using fuzzy logic logic when you're launching a rocket into space. Right. Uh, so what was the name on that one? Uh, that was uh, Laura Van uh -huh. Brom Stewart. Oh, great. Well, thank you for sending us in that correction. And when you notice that uh, I've made a mistake or when GW has made a mistake, which uh, happens less frequently, I think. Uh, but either way, whenever you catch that, definitely hit us up and let us know and we'll, we'll give you a shout out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any final thoughts on the chapter? No, uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. Forms uh, of superintelligence. Yeah, where he's going to dive into superintelligence more, much more specifically, uh, which will make me feel better, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, uh because I like a very precise definition of terms, especially when dealing ones that have the potential to be really ambiguous. Right. And I think we'll see in this next chapter that uh, any hope of us keeping up with the machines is, is a pipe dream. So that'll be good. Yay. Yay.